Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Semi-Sweet, John O'Brien. John O'Brien, author of Semi-Sweet, An Orphan's Journey Through the School That Hershey Built. Uh, for people who are not familiar with it, can you explain what the Milton Hershey School is? Sure, but that uh, requires reading the book uh, in part. But uh, yeah, it's, it's the most remarkable school on earth in my view, uh, starting with the fact that it, it serves uh, 2,000 of the neediest kids in the U.S. Uh, as their home 365 year-round and it has a uh, over a 12 billion dollar endowment that's with a B <laughs> and uh, that puts it up there with most of the Ivies and universities with the biggest and and that the school owns the Hershey Chocolate Company not the other way around. How'd that which, come to be? Well because my book's about two things both Milton Hershey, Milton Hershey the school, but Milton Hershey the man. And he was one of the most in, uh, incredibly generous people and one of the finest philanthropists ever to walk the earth in my view. And, and to give you an idea of that, he gave his fortune away to the orphan boys, they were all white males at the time, to his orphan boys in 1918 Having started the school in 09, he then gives his entire fortune of $60 million to the orphan kids a full 27 years before he dies. So it's not like a deathbed philanthropist. Most are, right? They're wondering what to do with their money when they uh, see the, the end zone. But he decides to do that. And then the humility of the guy. He doesn't even mention it to anyone. It's five years later that somehow the New York Times picks it up that um, Milton Hershey has done this for his boys. Is the candy company run any different because it's owned by this school? Not so much. Uh, they work hard because it still is a publicly traded company. The school owns it in the sense that it has about 70-some percent of the voting share and about a third of the equity, uh, but they go out of their way, the managers, to make sure that the Hershey Company gets run by its own separate board. Now, for, again, for people who are not familiar with it, where is Hershey, Pennsylvania? Hershey's just uh, east of Harrisburg by eight miles. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's probably an hour and a half north of, of Philadelphia. Uh, and it's in one of the most beautiful little valleys uh, in that very rich and fertile uh, central Pennsylvania area. So why'd you write your book? Gosh, I had to, Brian. I mean, uh, 
I spent uh, 65 years of my life uh, uh, connected closely to the Milton Hershey School, starting as a three-year-old orphan myself and then getting this incredible opportunity by some miracle to come back uh, some uh, almost 55 years later to become its president. And so uh, this is an in-between. I played all kinds of roles that are described in the book as, as well. So it's, it's a full circle journey and this is my home as it is for most of the kids who spent at least a good part of their childhood there. And this is a book that I had to get off my heart, for one thing, as my wife says, but that I also want the entire world to know about this remarkable school uh, that uh, serves kids in a way nobody else can. How many students go there? We're right around the 2000 mark now, which is the highest we've ever been. Uh, we're on, again, think of resources. We have 10,000 acres uh, to work with as well as the incredible endowment. And you arrived at age three? Yeah, I was uh, dropped off uh, uh, with my older brother Frankie, who was five, when I was three, kind of like uh, abandoned like bags of soiled laundry. Is, is my first recollection. I don't have many at that age. Did they just drop you off at the door or was there an, a, an application program? Well, there was an application, uh, but we were just taken there and our aunt uh, had driven down with a friend and we looked around and suddenly she wasn't there. Uh, why, why were you taken there? We had lost our parents tragically uh, in uh, what was told to us as a tragic car accident. Uh, in fact, it's something far more horrific than that. Uh, and maybe I'll leave that one for the book unless you ask about it. So as a three-year-old, what, what did they do with you? I mean, what was life like? How did you settle in? Well, it's a little bit like the uh, old mother in a the shoe. There were just boys pouring out everywhere. We had 32 uh, uh, cottage mates, if you will. It was in a big red cottage, biggest building I had ever seen in my life. I had been born in Snowshoe, Pennsylvania, up in, Snow, in Center County. And um, the one thing the school knew how to do, a couple things. One is they knew how to feed you. We had terrific food from the start. But how to get the kids playing and working together. So they were always rolling out a ball or something for us to jump on and play. And then we had to do our chores. So from the very beginning, I remember it by age four, that I had chores. And, and we started developing the, a deep work ethic right then. Was it all ages mixed together? Uh, we were divided into two groups. And so there was the elementary school uh, students. We were in cottages of about 30 or so kids per cottage. And then when you finished the fifth grade, you went out to the farm homes. And so Mr. Hershey was, I think, very uh, wise in thinking about how do, how do we get the older kids to burn off that energy? So we all went out to dairy farms. There were 40-some dairy farms. We were 20, 15 to 20 kids per dairy farm. And you can guess that part of our chore every day, twice a day, was to milk those cows and to bring in all the other work. So if you think about the age split, though, from 
uh, kindergarten or pre-K to fifth grade was a pretty nice grouping. But from sixth grade, from 10 years old up to maybe even 19 plus, that was a pretty rough uh, gathering of kids. Were there many three-year-olds there? Very few. Uh, technically, you're supposed to be four, and I turned four within weeks, I think, as I recall. Um, and so there weren't even many four-year-olds, but by the time you got to be third grade, fourth grade, it started to fill up pretty good. Did you have classes or, or schooling when you were four? Sure, yeah. So I was in the pre-kindergarten, and I had to repeat. Uh, so my, my guy, Did you buddies, <laughs> teased me that I flunked, but I was just too young. And so I did another year of pre-K and then K and then on through and spent my whole childhood there, graduated from there uh, 14 years later. What was it like settling in? Some parts were easy, especially the play. The hard part was the sense of abandonment. Uh, it was a really deep and raw feel of not being wanted, of uh, just being dropped off. And uh, Frankie and I, fortunately, my brother, uh, slept in little cots next to each other and we would hold hands every night was our ritual and and cry quietly because there was no crying allowed in this very macho institution. You say in the book that there's three codes of behavior and one is no crying right? and uh, the other one is n nobody talks about how they came to be at Milton Hershey School. Right, that uh, there was just no appetite for the stories because ev everyone had a a real victim story and, and they all were pretty awful and so I guess there was just an understanding we didn't want to hear about it. What was the third one? I, oh, there I was no squealing. Oh, no squealing. No ratting. You couldn't, you know, it was us against the, the authorities, whether that was the house parents, the principal, and so on. And so we had a kind of an omerta of everything stays here. You, you talk about the bullying in there. Mm -hmm. did, was it was that in the elementary school too, or was that till you? Not so till much until the, the uh, when you went out in the kind of the rough and tumble farm homes with that big age split. So you had ten year olds and eighteen year olds together. Yeah, uh, you did, and and you know while there'd be teasing and stuff and little punching and things happened in elementary school, it wasn't until you got into into the sixth grade with the high school seniors and juniors there was we even were called the big guys and the little guys and the big guys had all the power and control and they they would have the little guys do all their errands and chores for them and would rough them up if they didn't and and so it could be pretty tough what'd you learn from that gosh i learned i didn't want to be that way uh, for one thing uh, it took a horrible toll on my brother frankie frankie was uh, was just a lot uh, kinder, gentler, more tender kid than, than I was, much smarter too. And uh, he didn't have the wherewithal to stand up for himself. And being my older brother, I was kind of looking to him for help and, it, and discovered that he needed more than, than I did. And when you were, say, in, in ten, 10 years old and up, what was a day like? A day was uh, hearing that awful alarm <laughs> go off, the, like like it would be at the firehouse. Do you remember how early it was? Oh yeah, that's around five to five fifteen at the latest every day. That was when you were living at the farmhouse. Yes, 
and uh, and then we would scamper, make our beds quickly, scamper to the barn room, okay, and go from our house clothes into the barn clothes and, and rush out to, to do the milking and all the, the cleanup before we'd even come in for breakfast. Change into house clothes, eat breakfast, change into school clothes, catch the bus up to the hill, Milton Hershey, the school then, for the high school and junior high kids sits up on the hill at the proudest perch in the valley. That's one that overlooks the amusement park now? Yes, yeah, yeah that uh, Mr. Hershey wanted the best perch in the valley for his boys. And, uh, and then we'd have our routine classes, sports and music, if you were smart enough to get on them. If you weren't, you had to come home and do the milking with fewer hands, right? So you can imagine how all of us wanted to <laughs> <Incentive. be laughs> on a sports team and help make our, our athletic teams great. You played sports? I did. I loved sports. I came to it naturally. Again, a difference between my brother and I. I was fit, quick, loved contact. He abhorred contact. Uh, so I played football, basketball, baseball, and was fortunate to rise to the, to the top in all those. How were your classes? Classes were terrific. Uh, by the time, um, gosh, even before I got out of elementary, I had a, a teacher or two who took me under their wing. I don't know why me and not Frankie, but, and then that, that seemed to continue with both with teachers and coaches that I had advocates. And boy, that's the main message of my book is that if, if you can get a good adult advocate or two, it doesn't matter what adversity you're facing, you can come out of it stronger. But Frankie didn't have that same support. So the teachers all the way through, uh, Mr. Bickley, my science teacher, Mr. Fisher, my German teacher, who then became president of the school through 1990, just outstanding people uh, that really got me squared up away for life. When you were a little kid, four, five, six years old, who looked out for you? No one, really. I mean, you had to look out for yourself. I happened to have good house parents. Uh, this was a married couple. Uh, at the elementary school level, uh, my house parents would not be so great at the junior high and senior high level when, when I went out to the farm. So I shouldn't say no one looked out for me because I was extremely fortunate, as was Frankie, uh, to have very nurturing house parents from K to five. Were there kids who just couldn't handle that, who, who needed somebody to keep a close eye on them? Yeah, we were pretty uh, uh, energized and, uh, you know, we were coming from difficult circumstances in most cases, so we had a lot of energy to burn and not all in the right direction, so, yeah. And the basic rule of thumb, I talk about the regimentation in there, um, that the institutional model was to have everybody doing the same thing pretty much all the time and everybody in their place, knowing exactly where to be, uh, what to be doing, and when to be doing it. And that kind of graded on me over time and a lot of the kids because it's, it's mind-numbing to be institutionalized, you know, from age four on. Were there kids who just rebelled against it and there were constant behavioral sure. problems? Sure, yeah, yeah, there were some kids who were who are were creative delinquents I call them uh, and they did well because they didn't quite go over the line 
In fact, sometimes they were liked by the adults because they had a lot of spark and ingenuity, right? But there were then a number of kids, of course, who would push it too far, whether it was physical abuse, whether it was running away, whether it was stealing or something uh, serious, and then they would be removed. Did you have many of those runaways? I'd say a good half of the kids ran away at one time. My brother and I did. We got a block and we were terrified and came back. <laughs> it was possible to get expelled from there? Yes. Yeah, it was very clear. Now, when I was there, uh, all of us children were still indentured to the school. We were legally owned, in a, in a sense, by Mr. Hershey and the Board of Managers, a practice that continued, I think, until about uh, the early 50s. And so it says right in there that for at any time, you know, the board of managers could remove a child without question. Did you have free time? There wasn't a lot of free time because uh, free time and the devil's workshop, however that goes. And uh, that, um, you know, so we'd try to invent it. Like I signed up for trapping that looked like free time. It meant I had to get up at 4 a.m. instead of 5.15 to go check the traps. But at least you were out without supervision. And that was pretty important. And we all talked about ways of going over the wall. That didn't mean necessarily to run away, but to get an extra park privilege to go into Hershey Park or to do something where you weren't being watched. Uh, so you, you couldn't just kind of stroll into town and visit the soda shop? No. No, you'd have to be on a, an assigned privilege and you'd have to sign out, sign back in, usually get transportation, usually couldn't walk, though we did sometimes. Did you have possessions? <clears throat> like could you have your own toys or your own books or things you like could. that? You uh, could. You know, that was a tricky matter in its own right because some kids would get better stuff. Uh, you weren't allowed to have much in the way of clothing because that had to always be alike. It was always institutional. So we were recognized when we went into town and the, the Hershey public school kids would say, here come the cows, and then we'd get into a fight. Typically. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, there was a lot of rough and tumble. What were your clothes like? They were uh, nice. Uh, Mr. Hershey says right in his deed he didn't want us to wear uniforms, so they were all, in a sense, sort of different. But they're from the same manufacturer and the same style. So they were khakis and kind of you know, a semi-sport shirt kind of thing. But we had our barn clothes, our school clothes, our house clothes, our house shoes, because you could never come in from the outside and not put your house slippers on. And then we had our Sunday best. Was Milton Hershey alive during the time you were there at all? No, unfortunately, I missed uh, that honor. He died in 1945. Frankie and I came to the school in 47. So we just missed but we would hear about him every week, almost. I mean, the, and the school to this day honors him practically, certainly every month. What happened on holidays or like Christmas or summer break? What'd you do? Well, for a while, uh, there was only visiting privileges on weekends and you could have day privileges if relatives came. Frankie and I never had anyone come. Then they started allowing you to go for a week and then two weeks in the summer back wherever home was. And uh, Frankie and I at first didn't have anyone. 
and then we started having relatives from Snowshoe come down, and that was the ultimate going over the wall, you know, legally, <laughs> uh, to get away. But I remember, as, as nice as that was, in the beginning, the absence of that, to watch the other kids get picked up, uh, to look out the window pane, and, and Frankie and I'd even pack our little suitcase, and no one ever coming, and we'd have to drag it back upstairs. The school, the school was open tw 20, uh, 12 months a year? 12 months every day, still is, always will be. I, I want to ask you about a letter that uh, Frankie and Johnny, you and your brother, wrote to your grandmother. Uh, and says, this is a scary, dangerous place. The older big boys pick on us and make us their slaves. They make us do their ironing, shoe shining, and other chores. They make fun of us and sometimes even beat us up. The house parents don't stop them and don't even seem to care about us. Was this typical or was this written at a particularly bad time? Well, the timing is important because that's junior high. So when kids, if they were going to be bullied, and, and there were some farm homes where there were very good house parents and good seniors, old, the big guys, who didn't do much bullying. Most cases, they still made the little guys do their chores or their little gophers. But this was junior high, so I would have been in sixth grade and I was 10 years old. Frankie would be in eighth and he was 12 years old. So it was in that period of time that we would write every day to our poor little grandmother. Uh, and our mother was one of uh, 13 kids uh, and a wonderful family. But I look back and I feel terrible about making her feel so bad uh, because she had to love us a lot to let us go and, and come to this place. But at that time, we couldn't see it that way, and Frankie especially needed to get out. Uh, Why did he need to get out? Because he was being bullied a lot. He was not a, a kid who would stand up for himself. Uh, and... Um, that was taking a toll on him. Uh, he wasn't popular. Uh, he had got, been in a car accident on the way to Snowshoe uh, a year earlier and had gone through the windshield. We don't know how much that contributed to his uh, demise, but uh, he was going downhill. He couldn't stay with the program uh, because he'd be scared. Uh, of being bullied, uh, he wanted to be liked, and he wasn't. Uh, didn't seem to have the same kind of mentors, teachers, and he wasn't an athlete, so he didn't have any coaches. So for him, it, it, it probably was a living hell uh, at the time. Was this book difficult for you to write? To, to rehash all this, or is it stuff you'd sooner put behind you? More the latter. Uh, more, more of it, uh, I would say, was, was cathartic. It was a little hard getting started, but when I got in it, it's almost like I needed to keep expressing some of those memories that I hadn't even thought about. And I sort of kept the, the home guy silence even when I went on to college and stuff. I wouldn't tell most of the people, maybe a best friend or something. My first wife remarked uh, that she didn't know much about <laughs> what she read in the book. My current bride, Gail, does, thank God. But So this was very healthy, I think, to get this expressed. 
What do you mean by home guy? That's what we were called. First, we, that we did consider this our home. We might have had a love-hate with it, but it was our home, uh, especially after a few years there. And, uh, and so we were the home guys. It was all just male. It was a pretty high testosterone place, you, know, you can imagine. When did they start allowing girls? That occurred, see if I get my math right, I think in, in the late, uh, in the mid to late 70s. So you were long gone by well then? Well gone by then. And then I made the mistake of going to Princeton, which was all male. I don't mean mistake. <laughs> I love Princeton. I am such a Princeton tiger through and through. But. And it was all white by the, the will, by Milton Hershey's That's will? correct. Yeah, it was white male orphans between the ages of four and 15, I believe. How did they go about changing that? Well, clearly the social pressures, social and legal pressures, were beginning to, to mount. And the school was, I think, uh, uh, sage enough to, to see that this would be a good thing for the school in any event. And so they had to go to the courts and get a Cypre, a modification, to first admit minorities, and I think that was late 60s, and then to admit girls. In both cases, it made it such a better place. You know, richer, warmer, more diverse place, more nurturing. But you also have now teenage boys and teenage girls living yeah. away from parents, and, yeah. which poses other problems. Sure, there are challenges. Uh, you know, all around, uh, but that's a good one to have. And just a picture that I love to, to talk about. So when I came back, to, we haven't talked about yet, but I'm back at the school and I'm looking at this new kaleidoscope rainbow of, of colors, especially in our elementary school. And they're black and white and yellow and brown and they're colorblind. These kids have no idea that they're a different color, it doesn't matter. And the friendships that get developed there, just pure and deep. Well, we talked about you, you being a little kid there, but what was, what was high school like when you got to be the age that, of the people who bullied you when you were littler? Yeah, high school uh, for me, uh, with the exception of now uh, having lost my brother Frankie, and I go to see him now. He's at the Hollidaysburg State Hospital Asylum. I mean, that's a terrible place. Thank God they closed those. Um, but except for that, now I'm hitting my stride in athletics. I have terrific uh, teachers. My house parents aren't so good, but you I'm away. Same, you have the same house parents for, for a year or for longer? Typically, if everything worked out fine, you'd have the same house parents from sixth grade through 12. So from kindergarten to five, and then you go to the farm home and you'd have the same. But uh, I was moved once when they closed my farmhouse down, so I had two sets. Uh, and uh, anyway, I can tell you more, but high school was just a great trip for me. I have to ask you about something. Right toward the beginning, when you were <clears throat> three years old and you first arrived, you said, the first thing I noticed about the school was the sharp lemony scent that hung in the broad hallways. Yeah. Are there times now when you smell a smell like that and you're immediately back Absolutely, there. right away. Uh, I, I can get that kind of pine scent and that lemon feel on wood and I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there at uh, Fannie B Memorial uh, Elementary School. 
You say in here you applied to, um, was it Princeton, Harvard, and three? Uh, Harvard, Cornell, and West Point. That, that's aiming pretty high. Well, it was, and, and when I was growing up, and you can imagine, we don't get out. So I, other than going to Snowshoe, I hadn't been out of the county. And so I'm pretty sure I hadn't heard of the Ivy League. And just through good fortune and the ability to run pretty fast with the football, that helped. But being number one, two in my class, I started getting uh, letters recruiting letters from places and they included all big football schools. Because up till then I was thinking, you know, maybe I go to Slippery Rock or Lock Haven to, I thought, great schools. I had teachers from there who thought the world of them. Maybe Penn State if I got fortunate. And then I started hearing from these other places and I said, you know, I want the best education. I'm not that great an athlete. <laughs> you know, at least I didn't think so and looked at all those schools, the four, and was drawn by, Penn, by, by West Point because it was the same kind of place as Milton Hershey. But I then sort of caught myself and said, I don't want the same. Uh, and Princeton was really warm and family-like, and they really wanted me, and that's, that's where I went. How was your football team in high school? We had, uh, gosh, the, the most interesting uh, <laughs> dearth of of success in the beginning and then just enormous it was it was the opposite kind of outcome so uh, sophomore year we were supposed to be great we weren't junior year I happen in preseason to tackle our starting quarterback and I break his arm and suddenly I'm quarterback I felt <laughs> terrible about that but but we didn't win a game it was the first time I think in the history of the school that we didn't win one game now we we're playing the big schools here we we're playing you know, Central Dauphin and Lancaster and New York and Altoona and Bethlehem. And we just had 90 kids in our class, but we were tough. And then our senior year, it all started coming together because these same kids really beginning to gel, really into sacrifice, you know, as one united group. And we started getting better and then started beating some of these big teams. And then at the end, we played Cedar Cliff, who was undefeated, 8, eight or 9-0. and oh, And we beat them for our last home game. And then we played Lancaster, who was ranked, I think, number one in the state. And we went down to Lancaster and beat them to finish our career. So we went from the lowest of <laughs> low uh, in the pits to the, to the real top of the pile. Who was your coach? Coach Bainey Boozer, who uh, was graduated from Columbia, and then I had a great backfield coach who had just come uh, from Lock Haven, and uh, he became a real mentor uh, to me. Did you keep in touch with him after you finished I did, Hershey? I did, and would come back to see him a lot, end up being the head coach here for a while. Now, you said um, in the book that uh, traditionally when you graduated from high school, they'd give you $100 and pat you on the back and say... A little suitcase, too. Oh, suitcase. suitcase. And yeah. they'd say, catch you later. Yeah. Did that happen to you? It did, and it, it was just the way of doing things. It was almost like the deed of trust was being interpreted literally because it says something like that in there. Um, and instead of thinking, wow, we've just invested, in Johnny's case, 14 years and a lot of assets... Let's kind of track him and, and help him out along the way. 
At that time, there was a Hershey Junior College. It was closed in the early 60s. A uh, very unpopular move. Uh, and most of our graduates who went to college at all would go there. Was it run by the school? The it trust? was. It was. And it was open also to the local public school graduates. And that was all paid for. If you went away, as maybe half a dozen of us did in my class, you had to pay for your own. Fortunately, I had full financial aid, as most of us did. So only about a half a dozen out of your class of 90 went away to college? Correct. So that you had no fellow Milton Hershey School graduates with you at Princeton? No, I don't know. I think there's maybe one other kid had ever gone to the Ivy League period. But What was it like uh, from, from such a structured environment suddenly to find yourself in Ivy League college as a freshman? Scary. Uh, I was untethered. I had never sort of made decisions for myself. I had never kept my own clock, right? <laughs> knowing where to be, when. That was all scheduled for you. And so it was a, it was a, uh, almost a terrifying feeling of being that free from never having been. And uh, fortunately, though, football happens in the fall. So I was immediately on the freshman football team. I got structure. I got immediate friends. Coaches were supportive. So were some of the professors. So I was able to make it after getting on academic probation. I, I decided I'd be an engineer because the Russians had sent Sputnik up. And I realized I was a, a terribly equipped. For, Lousy grades in the beginning? Oh, I was, you know, I went from never having anything but an A in high school to, to failing grades. And uh, almost left Princeton, but the professor said, you don't need to leave, Johnny. You just need to find a major <laughs> that you like. Well, we, from, uh, without, well, uh, stereotyping, uh, Ivy League colleges uh, sometimes have a student body that was raised with a little more wealth than average. Yeah. Did, did you encounter that as a difficulty in getting accepted by the, some of the other kids at Princeton? Not, not at all, and uh, not that I knew what to expect. I haven't e hadn't even read Fitzgerald's, you know, Other Side of Paradise or anything, but I started hearing that we were the, you know, the, the real prep college of, of the North. And um, that um, I had instant friends, again, with my athletic buddies. But almost everybody I met there was kind and bright, witty, you know, obviously very smart. But they, they played down their wealth. Occasionally, I'd, I'd hear things like, before Christmas or something around our table at the, at the fraternity. Tiger Inn was where, where I was. Uh, it, I'd, I'd hear my classmates talk about going to Europe, you know, or, or, or down to St. Bart's or, or something. And I thought, hmm, I'm going up to see my home guy buddies up in Hershey. And maybe I'll have a couch to sleep on, you know. Is that where you would go in uh, holidays and Most often, summer yeah. break? Come yeah. right back here. Just like I am tomorrow. This is our homecoming. And I like to, we, we kid about it seriously, though, that it's the only real authentic homecoming maybe in, in the country. The rest are school comings, right? We're coming home. How many years has it been since you left Milton Hershey School? I retired in 09. I mean, uh, since you left as a student. Oh, 61. So, so we've already had our 50th. 
How many of those people have you kept in touch with? I'd say a dozen on a regular basis and maybe then more on a every other homecoming kind of basis every other year. When uh, you decided that engineering was not for you, what field did you go into? Went into, into psychology. I figure one thing that I loved is trying to understand people, figure out human nature. And I had a lot to figure out. I had my brother to figure out. I had my father, who, by the way, ends up still being alive. He is not dead, after all, um, to try to figure out. And uh, so I was really drawn to this whole mystery of how people think. How'd you do in that field? And I thrived in that. that was, that's for me. I loved it, especially when Princeton wanted my my own opinion on exams and things. I had lots of opinions, and I'd put them out there. How far into your education did you go? You went to Johns Hopkins? Then I went to Hopkins and got a master's degree in and, education. And they lost your transcript? Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, was that so, be awkward. <laughs> so embarrassing, because here I am. This is when I'm uh, being considered for the full-time position as president of the Milton Hershey School. So I've come full circle back there from a three-year-old. Now I'm 60 and I'm being considered. And all of a sudden the headhunter says, I don't think you went to Johns Hopkins. They don't have no record of you. I've asked them. And I said, I don't think I just like <laughs> fantasized that year and those people and those courses. So I looked and looked and sure enough, they had lost it. I guess when they converted from manual to to uh, internet and and then I found my diploma in the attic after a long search and so on. But it felt weird having to prove what <laughs> obviously now has occurred. So you got a master's degree from Hopkins? Yes, in education. And did you go further from that or did you launch your career at that point? I launched it. I had already done some teaching before then. Uh, that was the interesting uh, story of I applied to a job at Princeton for admissions but in the meantime Milton Hershey officials call me up and say Johnny would you like to come back and teach at coach at your old home I said I'd love it there's nothing more I'll be up there tomorrow if I can and and I responded to the offer letter with a letter of my own saying can we even move up the start date I was so excited the ultimate honor to, to go back and how, how old were you then I would have been about 26, maybe, 25, 26. And, and I said at the end here, a, a few areas where I think I can even personally help out uh, with the school. And three days later, I got a letter of rescission back, of declining the offer, because I had thought that I, I had mentioned some areas where I thought the school should, could improve. They took a front? Uh, that <laughs> institutions tend to, and, and Milton Hershey is very closed in that regard. Uh, uh, one of the reasons people don't know about it is because they're they're so uh, uh, secretive and and closed down. You had a career as a, a coaching executive managers. Yes. Yeah, so uh, how'd you get yourself in that position? Well, again, I love the whole notion of how people tick. And I had done some work in, in teaching and I had done some work in coaching and in educational research uh, in Washington. And then I realized I want to do something 
that is far more challenging and a little bit scary. And I thought about what, what could I do? And I thought about coaching. Coaching not sports, but people around leadership. And I was gonna do it for educators because I knew the education world somewhat. And then one day I happened to be actually in Africa and I was climbing Kilimanjaro and I got the idea of no, make it even tougher than that. Challenge yourself. And I said, okay, then I'm going to work with the top executives in Fortune 500 companies. Now, I didn't know how I'd do that. I was too young to do that. I didn't have the expertise to do that. But I decided that's where I could make the most difference. And so I went 0 for 62 on calling these corporations. It was a 63rd, happened to be Smith Barney. And the training director there looked at me and said, Johnny, I'm not sure I fully understand what you're, you're offering here, but I think we want some of it. <laughs> and I was in, and then it just, the business exploded from there. At what point did you look at Milton Hershey School and think there's trouble there, I gotta get back involved? Yeah, really that started to happen right around 1990. Uh, that was the time when Bill Fisher, my old, German teacher was president and he's outstanding, solid as a limestone boulder here. And um, the board at that time, and the board is all powerful at Milton Hershey, the governance there is an issue because it has absolute control and authority and isn't really accountable to anyone. They decided that, that, that the school model wasn't the best it could be and they thought they had a better way of structuring the school than Mr. Hershey, the founder, did. And that meant essentially taking less needy kids, kids who were better off, kids who had better track records, and it started to become a little more of a middle-class prep school. So he let Mr. Fisher, President Fisher, go and brought in some presidents who started to do that. The alumni then, and we're very difficult to rile because we're very loyal uh, and we're deferential to our school. It's our alma mater, our alma potter, our home, or everything. And but, but by that time, we got riled up because the school was being taken off its mission. And so I helped uh, to lead that. Um, I guess you'd call it a, certainly a protest, uh, maybe even a revolution in the mid '90s. And it sort of all came to a fruition in 2002 when uh, the then current board, trust board, decided to put the Hershey Company for sale on the block. Then the community rose up to join us in wanting to get the board reformed. Uh, does the Alumni Association have clout? Or is it an informal thing? Not legal cloud. I mean, we do have personal clout mm -hmm. because we, we are the beneficiaries, but we've never been able to get legal standing. We've attempted that and it's failed. Uh, and so that's why through the early 90s all the way to 2000, all of our protests weren't really going anywhere. Uh, 60 Minutes finally did a piece, but it was kind of a powder puff piece in the school and didn't add much. Um, and so I'm not sure we'd have ever gotten this reform if the board hadn't put the company on the block. Why'd they want to sell the candy company? 
Actually, the story is that they didn't, uh, but that the Attorney General at the time, that would be Attorney General Fisher, and his office was pushing them behind the scenes to sell it, that there needed to be more diversification, and I understand that. Uh, I think it's an important uh, thing to do. Uh, and so the board went down that path and then I think the Attorney General decided to run, decided about that same time to run for governor. And with the uproar, he thought maybe it wasn't a good thing to sell the company, and they pulled it off the, the you, block. You write in the book about how the, the, the boards of the, is it the uh, Herco, the Park and the Recreation, Entertainment and Recreation, and the candy company and the school were all kind of intertwined? Yeah, it's a little tricky to understand, but at the very top, the umbrella is the Milton Hershey School Trust, if you think of it. Those people, those board members, also populate this same group, populate a thing called the Milton Hershey School Board of Managers that oversees the operation of the school. But the umbrella, the Milton Hershey School Trust, owns 100% of Hershey Entertainment, the park, golf clubs, the hotel, and so on and they own 70% voting share of the Hershey Company. And is there a problem with them sitting on boards of multiple levels of this? I think there is. Um, uh, up until, I guess, even around this 90 period, uh, the board members who did that were so devoted to Mr. Hershey, they even probably knew him, a lot of them. Uh, and I think the, the commitment to serve in this, this, this sacred capacity was so deep and pure that they didn't want to take compensation. It wasn't an issue. They, they knew the focus was all about the school. A couple generations later, board members aren't connected so much with Mr. Hershey. Uh, there's absolute power and there's the ability to name your own compensation. And so some started to do that and increased it. Then they appointed themselves to other entities, which then quadrupled their compensation to the point that there's an enormous amount of money being paid to board members. And that doesn't happen in charitable schools. I want to read you something about the Philadelphia Inquirer did some articles that uh, hung out a lot of dirty laundry. They reported that board members worked an average of five hours a week. They stayed for free at lavishly renovated Hershey uh, Hotel Hershey and enjoyed free rounds of golf at Rendale Co Golf Club, which they had bought with school money. The board paid $12 million for the club, more than twice its appraised value, and spent more than $4 million to renovate the clubhouse. And you say this all took place at a time when the board had shelved our commitment to increase enrollment to 2,000 students, ostensibly because of the bad economy and reduced trust revenues. Mm -hmm. That's anything come out of those Inquirer articles? I think it, I think it heightened the knowledge, at least in Philly and, and in Hershey, about the dangers of an all-powerful uh, no-check and balance board. Uh, it didn't really create any reform. There was an in, uh, attorney general investigation at the time that was just allowing to lapse. And then Attorney General Kane came in and had the opportunity to do something. 
a few things were done, but not much uh, in most people's view. Uh, to me, the issue is one of absolute power and, and money, that, there, that, that if you're going to have total authority for a place that has the assets that the school has of 12 billion and all that that implies, uh, I think there needs to be such a high moral sense of self-discipline because there are no checks and balances. And part of that would be taking little to no compensation. And the board didn't take any compensation until about 92, I think. Uh, and it would, it would call for transparency that the board operates to a large degree uh, in secret, in executive session. Uh, most of the things they do aren't known uh, unless they have to be reported uh, is it almost by federal a, law. Is it almost a problem that the trust is so big? I mean, $12 billion to, for a school? I think th th certainly size itself is a huge challenge. There isn't any question. I think what complicates it is when you take it from the mission is all about the school. If you read the deed of trust, Mr. Hershey's left everything for the kids and for the school. And if the focus stayed right there, it'd be fine. But suddenly then you have a Fortune 500 company sitting here. You have this enor enormous Hershey recreation operation even have some of the community foundation involved and so on. And now, if people especially sit on interlocking boards like that and, and are not transparent about their operation, there isn't any way to know what's going on. And the focus then tends to move away from the kids. You also say in here at one point the school's accreditation was being challenged. What, was, was the education, quality of education, not what it should have been? I always thought it was good. Uh, one thing I, I want to make sure I say is that Mr. Hershey founded the school as the Hershey Industrial School, and it was built on a vocational, on a shop model, and it was the finest vocational school in the world, I bet. Um, the shops and the teaching and the apprenticeships, our kids learned uh, crafts and vocations and employers would line up in the spring to get our graduates. I mean, we were that well trained and had great work ethic because character development came first at Milton Hershey. So employers wanted those kids. Well, at some point when college became so important uh, for future success, we migrated away from the vocation programs, but kept uh, some of them. So I think the education along the way for its time has been very good. Uh, it's not high-powered the way an Exeter, Lawrenceville, Andover would be because we're taking kids who come from way back, academically, emotionally, otherwise. I don't want to interrupt you, but we only have a few minutes left. I, I, I have to ask you about how you became president of the, of the school. Yes, so to how me, that that's a miracle, because I had learned earlier on from my example when I had, had gotten accepted for that post, you know, that, that you can't dissent 
and still get in the Big Ten. And here I was helping to lead the alumni revolution. I had a high profile <laughs> dissenting role going on here. But when the smoke cleared and the board was required to be reconstituted, that came through the attorney general and the orphans court. Uh, they also were, were then retiring the president and they needed someone quickly. And alumni and other folks who knew me said I'd be a good candidate, so I was one of those considered. I was shocked, and I didn't think I had a chance. But they wanted to move pretty quickly, and I said I'd be willing to drop my business even and be up there tomorrow if I could, if you need me. And it wasn't tomorrow, it was two weeks <laughs> that I was then in as the acting president. They went through this almost a year-long search for the permanent, and I was really honored to, to get that post as well. And then I had seven best years of my entire career helping to bring the school back on its mission, get back the, the strong character development. We grew the school enrollment by 50%. We got the whole campus ready for the next 100 years. It was just wonderful. So when you came in as president, were you able to institute the kind of changes you thought were needed, or was there kind of a, a resistance to change? Well, there was, there was not much resistance from the new board because they wanted peace, among other things. <laughs> they wanted, with the alumni, they wanted you know, to, to have a semblance of, of, of stability, and I could bring that. Uh, and the morale was, was really low and so on. And so most of the staff and, and the kids, for sure, wanted to make this a special place again with lots of pride lots of, of, of great success stories. So we had a lot of help, but institutions by themselves, by definition, resist change. And so a lot of people thought I was going way too fast. And I said, well, Mr. Hershey, he built this chocolate factory in the middle of a cornfield. Well, he built the entire community around it. And then he brought in all the trolleys you know, for the transportation. And then he built all these, these other buildings. And then he invented the world's best chocolate, cheapest chocolate bar. And he did that all the same time. I think we could do this. He did this on the same soil, I said. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think we have the capacity. I say Milton Hershey School is one of the few places in the world where the mission, the sacred mission, and the inordinate resources combine. Uh, at what point did you think your job was done and it was okay to step away from it? It's a tough subjective definition, but I felt I needed to get the culture right. And that's what I did with corporations, if you think about it. And I thought the morale is up, the work ethic is back, we're being more accountable, there's less entitlement. Those were big things we were fighting. We've grown the school by 50%. We know we can do that. We've got back to enrolling the neediest, most alone, most vulnerable kids. And we've done this now for a good four to five years once we got it established. I said, uh, and it was the start of the second century. I said, it's a good time to turn it over. Are you still involved with the school? A little bit, you know, certainly with my friends up there, uh, for sure. Uh, I probably still have a little bit of uh, uh, some tension with the board, <laughs> but I, I accept that as, as part of the package. What's the future of the school? What's the second hundred years going to be like? 
That is such a great question because the model at 2000, maybe 2300 max is probably going to this current model kind of peaks out and we still have all these resources, money, land, other things. And so the question will be what alternative models are we willing to come up with? Because the deed's pretty restrictive. Institutions tend to be a little, uh, you know, restrictive. Uh, in their thinking, uh, but that's the big question because we could serve a lot more needy children with the resources we have, but we'll, we'll have to get resourceful and courageous. Well, we're going to have to stop there because we're out of time. We've been speaking with John O'Brien. He's the author of this book, Semi-Sweet, An Orphan's Journey Through the School That Hershey's Built. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.